Hello and welcome to the Outside and Active podcast. My name is Dom and I'll be playing host to conversations tailored for those who love the outdoors. Thank you for joining me on this adventure where I speak to a whole host of interesting guests with inspiring stories. And for our next stop on this adventure, I am joined by the incredible Ray Mears. Over the past two decades, the name Ray Mears has become recognised throughout the world as an authority on the subject of bushcraft and survival. He has also become a household name for his various television series, including Tracks, World of Survival, Trips Money Can't Buy with Ewan McGregor, The Real Heroes of Telemark, and many, many more. These programmes have reached out and touched the hearts of everyone, from small children to grandparents. They are enjoyed by many because of Ray's down-to-earth approach, his obvious love for his subject, and the empathy and respect he shows for the Indigenous peoples and their cultures. It's obvious to some and a surprise to others to discover that Ray has spent his life learning these skills and is truly a master of the subject he calls wilderness bushcraft and in this episode we have a really interesting conversation at the beginning all about social media and his viewpoint towards that and then we go into a lot of different things that ray has been involved with and his opinion on the outdoors so i'm really looking forward to putting this episode out and i hope you enjoy But just before we jump into this episode, I want to say thank you to Visit Isle of Wight, the sponsors of this week's episode. Renowned for its spectacular coastline, picture-perfect beaches, exciting cycling trails and enchanting villages, the Isle of Wight is the perfect getaway for outdoor enthusiasts. From paddleboarding and surfing to cycling and hiking, you'll be amazed on what the island has to offer. Say yes to your very own island adventure and find out more at www.visitisleofwight.com. Without further ado, let's head straight into this episode of the Outside and Active podcast with Ray Mears. Thank you, Ray. How are you doing? I'm good, Dom. Thank you very much. It's, it's great to have you here. We're at the uh, the National Outdoor Expo where you'll be speaking later. And uh, there's lots of people in this hall that love being outside and love yep. the outdoors in a number of different ways. And I'm looking forward to chatting about your experiences and, and what you love about being outside and active. But to begin with, what we do on the episodes uh, of this podcast is that people leave, uh, the guests at the end of an episode, leave a piece of advice to someone that they usually don't know they're leaving it to, and then that person, I'll, I pass it along to them. Right, okay, so, what's the baton I've been handed down? So it, it, this is a bit of a unique case, because uh, the person that we we spoke to earlier is a really, really nice man called Ben Turner, who's called the Adventure Coach, and he does a lot of coaching with people that want to go and uh, go on different adventures and achieve different things, and um he, uh, I don't usually tell people, but he was talking about you in the podcast because he obviously knew that you were going to be speaking here. And he said, oh, well, I, I, I kind of said that he'd be leaving it for you. And usually I would I'd transfer it, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a 30, 45 seconds or so, and I'll, I'll play it for you. Okay. Um, which, is, which is quite a nice thing All to right, do. Right, Ben, I'm so. listening. Okay, I think the best thing I need to say here is we spoke about social media. We spoke about all this other stuff in this podcast it's very important to understand that everything you do, rightly or wrongly, is in a social setting. People will know about it. And people follow you. Now, people might not always like what you're doing, but people always see what you're doing. You might not see the net gain or positive of that interaction, but you just being you and doing what you do changes people's lives. And now that I know who I'm telling that to, I'm saying that because that's exactly what that person did to me. Everything you do, and this goes to everybody, changes people's lives. 
And if you can go into your next interaction with social media, with people, with anything, with that in mind, then that just gives you another quiver to the bow, as it were, to just say, okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm helping change lives. Well, that's very nice. I mean, he was quite normal till he, sort of, he engaged with some of the work I'd done. Yeah. Well, he said he said that it was a massive part of him growing up um, when he eventually found the outside. That part of uh, part of that was from from you know seeing the things that you were doing. And I imagine that's something that over the years you have plenty of people come up to you and yeah. say, "Oh, that that's that's a massive thing." that you've done that you've inspired people's lives and their journeys and it, it does it does it still because it's a nice thing to hear all the time it's a fantastic thing to hear because that's been the the reason that i do what i do publicly in fact i can really i, I really you know take on board what he said there i spend an awful lot of my time trying not to be seen because i'm a private person and i hate the intrusion of phones we <laughs> This year I'm celebrating 40 years of bushcraft and um, I've seen a lot of things change in that time. And I, I would tell you about 10 years ago, we, we went through this phase, the selfie phase, <laughs> where people would, would come on a, a you know, training course, which are a full-on proper training course. This is a serious business. They were only there to get their photograph taken with me to make it look as though they were doing what I do. And that drives me nuts. You know, put the phone aside yeah. and live a little. Yeah, I mean, I'm saying that's appreciating that we've got cameras here and, mm. and, and, and technology and stuff. But the, the core part of it is, is trying to encourage and inspire people to be outside, be yeah. active yeah. and have that ability to put their phones away and actually step into nature and appreciate that the world that's around us is, you know, we, we are very aware that we're, we're very lucky we're living in a world that allows us these green spaces, but they will not be there all the time if we're not looking after them in, in the correct mm-hmm. way. Another question that we ask people is very, very generic, and it's, why do you love being outside and active? Gosh, I don't know. I don't know. I just do. And I've spent, you know, most of my life outdoors. Um, I'm, I'm sure I've spent more time outdoors than in. And um, that just feels like home. I'm very lucky because the the thing that I do outdoors, the subject I'm really interested in, makes you feel comfortable in places that other people describe as hostile. And so they become home. And uh, they're massively rewarding. To be in nature is the best thing in the world. And there are so many different aspects to that. Um, There's so many different things you can do. And I think a show like this really, you know, showcases that. But I'd equally say that there are different things you do at different ages in your life as well. And And it's very, very important to do the right things at the right time. I think, you know, to take up climbing in your 50s, well, great, go and do it. But that's hard work, you know, that's what your 20s are for. Um, when your body is perfectly adapted for that at that time. And it's very important not to waste a day, you know, life passes so fast. I mean, I look back over 40 years, it feels just like yesterday that I started. And um, you get to a point, I think, once you, once you turn 50, where you feel like you're on the downslope, the other side of the mountain. And... Uh, for me, I'm, you know, I'm like a whirling dervish now. I, I, I don't want to waste a second. I'm moving backwards and forwards doing more than I did before. Because I think when you're younger, time seems to go on forever. If it's a luxury, actually, it doesn't. It's passing. Every second is passing. And it's the greatest gift that we get from nature is life. Yeah, and, and we mustn't waste it. Old. And the, but, well, if, we, if yeah. we're able to. Exactly. But, but you might not be able to. And so it's very important to fill the time that you have. 
It's interesting you saying about uh, spending more time outside than inside because um, when Ben Fogel came onto this podcast, he said, it's weird now that if you say that you love the outdoors, it, it, you know, it seems a bit weird, whereas it actually it should be the other way around. Like, oh, I'm a bit weird. I, I actually like to spend time inside. Our natural reaction or our natural instinct should be to want to embrace this this outdoors. I mean, do you say so you, you said that, I don't really know why. I just love being outside and active. Do you have a point where you know where it started from from your upbringing of being outside on the nature? Gosh, I mean, I started going out and camping out when I was eight. I didn't have a sleeping bag or a tent. Yeah, it was it was all an adventure. My cooking pot was an old biscuit tin left over from Christmas, and. Um, I remember, for example, I mean, it seems strange, I know, to young people coming into the outdoors today, but I remember the first time that I sat on a, on a foam mat, and that was a new thing at that time. And I was camping out in the winter in snow, and the person I was camping out with had one of these newfangled sleeping mats, and I sat on it for five minutes, and it almost started a fight. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not getting off of this. <laughs> so... Today, we're handed so much good, good gear, you know, that, that it's easier than ever before to get out uh, and to do things. There's a lot of good advice available now through social media and all sorts of, of different means. But I am really worried, Dom. I think that we've lost a generation. Really? I, I've, I've, I don't see so many people in their, uh, their late 20s outdoors as I used to. And I wonder that we lost a generation to computer games and social media. And that really bothers me because I know that one day they're going to wake up and go, do you know, I wish I'd done that. Um, because we used to see people in their 40s who'd gone, who hadn't gone outdoors because they'd, they'd gone into careers. And then they suddenly wake up one day and go, so I've got everything I wanted, but actually I'm still not happy. And then you find them going outdoors and doing amazing trips. But I think there's this... I really worry that we've lost a generation. Social media is a weird one because, like you said, it's that potential that that generation's been taken away from. Instead of I'm going to go outdoors and go for a walk, it's I'm just going to go and sit and scroll on X, Y, Z social media. But on the flip side of that, it's a tool for you to be able to um, speak to an engaged audience about. You know, it might be through a previously through a book or through a television program, but now there's another medium to be able to access that. So See, where's that balance? Th- that's, that's the voice of your generation. It's really? a generation divide here. Whereas to me, it's like I turn my phone off. I don't need someone to tell me what to do. I will go and look, look for myself. I'll, I'll travel. I don't need a Lonely Planet guide. Let me just find out for myself. I want to see with my own eyes, feel with my own hands, talk to people communicate directly face-to-face with people. I don't want to go onto a phone and look and see what other people are telling me. I don't trust stuff I see on there. I mean, yes, there is, for certain, there's really good information on there, but you have to wade through so much junk. Absolutely. And and the the repetition of something, somebody makes a video, somebody copies it, puts their own little twist on it, and it's like Chinese whispers. You move further and further from the truth. Um, and I and I, I it's really interesting. I've, obviously, I've travelled a lot. When I, I the, one of the big things I notice now is when the aircraft lands wherever you are, there's a boom, and you can take your seatbelts. But people don't take their belts off. It used to be you'd hear clicking belts. Now it's heads down, phones up, and it's like, what's going on? This is very unhealthy. And I, I don't, you know, we should be masters of our tools, not mastered by them. That's a great way of, a great way of looking at it. I mean, like even just little things like um, travel and directions and map 
reading now is not something that necessarily you have to learn. I'm very fortunate I went through Duke of Edinburgh and, and orienteering and learned how to read maps, but it's not something now that necessarily young people... I mean, that fascinates me. You think it's not necessary to learn to read a map, and I would say as an outdoor profession with 40 years' experience, there is nothing more important. And when you can use a map, any of the other tools that you have are suddenly more valid and more more valuable. You understand them better. But, you know, the the, the joy of, of sitting under a tarp on a, when the rain's pouring on, on a canoe trip, planning where you're going to go next, and looking at the map and go, where should we go? It's fantastic. But you unplanned. Tried to, yeah. Unplanned. But you try to do that with a little myopic screen, and you're just getting a tiny, it's like looking through a map through a keyhole. It's not the same thing. And I believe in modern technology. I, I totally believe in GPS and uh, some of the communication with devices Safety we have today. Safety elements of that as well. They're brilliant. Yeah. They're absolutely brilliant, but they are not a replacement for the map and the compass. And I, I maybe I'm just old. But I when don't I, think so. When I look at a compass and I see that needle move, that's still more exciting than a satellite device. Because even compass is an app on your phone, a ready built-in app on your phone. But I've still got my... my um, Dom, I'm not talking there. about a compass in a phone that needs batteries. I'm talking about that little magnetised No, no, I know. That's what I'm saying to you. I'm <laughs> emphasising your point of yeah. going, there's even this on, you know, you yeah. don't... But uh, it's but, an interesting but point. I wonder why. I don't, I don't think it's just the arrival of alternatives. I also think it's that navigation has been taught... Poorly, perhaps. Maybe at school, people encounter map reading and geography, and it's not taught with a passion. Because my experience is when I meet people who are um, capable outdoor navigators, and you ask them, who taught you to navigate? There's usually somebody who lit the fire of enthusiasm, who loved the subject and passed that, that joy on. And now that's what we need to be looking at, is where can we find these mentors so that they are the ones feeding into the next generation and inspiring them? I, I, we will move on from the social media topic, but I find it really, really interesting. But So say, for example, you're here and there was someone just when we were coming into this room who asked for a, for a photo. Would you then rather have a conversation about a certain a more productive conversation about the outdoors, about a question that they might have about an experience or a piece of advice rather than, oh, can I have a photo and then leave? Absolutely. You knew, you knew the answer before you asked. And, you know, obviously I've been on TV, people recognise me and they come up and they'll start talking to you. They know who I am, but that I don't know who they are. And one of the things I always judge people by is whether they introduce themselves. And my experience has been I have the best conversations with people who, who come up. It's really nice to me. By the way, my name is Joe Blocks. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we're on an equal footing. And those they're always more interesting conversations. You know, we have to remember some manners. And I, and I think the world has changed, you know. And I, I'm, I'm, I am old-fashioned, and I, I'm not ashamed of that. Where did it start? Because there's... there's- being outdoors and there's hiking and walking and climbing and lots of different adventures you can go on, but it took a, a shine and specialism towards bushcraft and survival and that element of the outdoors. When did that start? I mean, that, I guess that, that matches up with going out and camping straight away. So that's all tied in together. It's all tied up together because I didn't have any equipment and I wanted to stay out. You know, I went to a school where we had to do judo. It was a compulsory lesson. and the, Judo was that? Judo. And oh, the, nice. the man who taught judo had been behind the lines in Burma during the Second World War. And I said to him, you know, I, I want to camp out, but I haven't got any camping equipment. He, he was brilliant. He said, well, we didn't have any in the war and you don't need it. 
and the door to bushcraft opened that you can use nature to help you um that's when it opened and and you know it, what what i didn't realize then that i know very clearly now is that bushcraft is particularly special as an outdoor pursuit and i'm not putting it over or above any others but i just one of the, the special dimensions of it is it it is truly lifelong learning because every skill you learn poses new questions and so you're constantly trying to answer those questions but as you answer them it's like climbing a ladder the view of nature and your place within it improves the higher up the ladder you go the further apart the rungs are you have to work harder but by then you know you just keep going forwards because every time you you, you take another step on, a, on on the ladder you look out and you get an incredible view so yeah. I mean, my work is to help people to get up that ladder by showing them the roots and the best ways when did the what were the steps for you you know, doing what you were doing and being involved in the outdoors to then becoming a more, in, like you said, in the mainstream eye, being on TV, people know you are, and TV programs come with that, and it's it's another dimension. How did the steps lead towards that? Gosh, just luck. I mean, it's just you know, it just happened. Life just happens. I've not planned anything, and um, I've just followed my heart and 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 done what I do, and I love what I do. The greatest joy that I get is actually teaching. That's the best thing of all. When I watch, I've just come back from the Arctic. We, we, 35 years we've been running a course in the winter in the Arctic. And when people arrive, you know, and it's minus 30, I say to them on the first day, don't wander off. You will get lost. You will die. And I mean it. And they know I mean it. Two weeks later, that's their world. And they're living in it. No problem. And that, to me, is the greatest thrill is to see that transformation which creeps up on people when they're learning. They don't notice the trans, but I see the transformation. It's especially in such an, a host, I say hostile environment, if that's the right. It phrase. is a hostile because environment until yeah. you um, appreciate it. We we spoke to uh, Preet Chandy, Polar Preet, who's done uh, the expedition across the South mm. Pole, and she said at the end, "I didn't feel like I've conquered that place. I feel like a great appreciation for that." Um, part of the world and also appreciation for it to allow me safe passage through that. Well, I agree with that. You can't conquer nature. And it's not about conquering things. That's a, an old-moded idea. It's about b- bending yourself to the flow of nature. Nature permits or denies you access. And um, the more skillful you are, the more likely you are to be admitted. Um, when I'm teaching, I, I actually, I just feel like a conduit for nature. Nature often takes a hand in the lessons that are taught and the way they're, that they're acquired. But places like the Arctic, they are hostile. We are, um, we are tropical creatures. We evolve for the tropics. So we only survive in, in the cold extremes, even in Britain, by taking with us you know, a, a tropical microclimate in terms of our clothing, our knowledge and, and what we do. The development in technology is something that we've spoken about, but the development in equipment for the outdoors is also massive. I mean, walking walking around this show, you see the incredible innovation from brands trying to make either the outdoors more accessible or be able to achieve things in it that people haven't been able to achieve. So I guess that's a a great step in the the science in, in that era. But at the same time, do you still have that appreciation for literally, like you said, when you were younger, going out with a sleeping bag and a tarp and just enjoying the, I love the, I love the simplicity of the old ways. Um, I guess I've, I've seen so many developments in equipment and clothing. I think the eighties were particularly exciting for climbing. 
in the 1980s when I was climbing, there were, almost every year there was some new development. The friend, you know, the camming protection device. Right. Put, I mean, when that came along, that was a revolution. And, and there have been, and of course, these things have improved, but I haven't seen the massive advances that there were in the past. Things just get tweaked and new materials come along, lighter, stronger, and so on, more ecologically sound, mm. which is good. Um, I think the clothing has changed a lot. I think fashion has too big a role to play now. And I noticed that people are often out in bad weather in very short, tight-fitting jackets, rain, rainproofs, because the manufacturers clearly want to sell trousers to go with them. Um, but if things are, are too tight, they're not warm enough. And um, we have to remember that when we're going out for real, in remote places where you're tested by the weather, you have to have the right gear. And as you said, when you're in those hostile environments, it is quite literally life and death. And yes. that's where the survival skills and elements that you are, are teaching as well yeah. come into it. Um, teaching is, are you teaching people of all ages, teaching people that are new to, you know, want to find out more about the outdoors, people that have been in it for a number of years, just want to upskill? The whole range, mm. everything. And that's the fun. And, you know, the campfire is a great leveller. You can sit around the campfire and you have on one side of the campfire someone who's never camped before in their life. On the other side, someone who's very experienced who wants to hone their, their knowledge. And when you sit around the campfire, there's, there, there, there's, a, there's a fraternity which is very, very special. It's very welcoming. I've always thought if we could get the world's leaders around a campfire, they'll all be tested by smoke in their eyes. They'll all have to contribute some firewood to the fire. They become a little society for a short while. Maybe we'd get some better answers in the world. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a good idea. It's probably better than a than a, a big exhibition hall of, and conference and, and stuff like that. Because the, the School of Wilderness Bushcraft is Woodlaw, and that's been going since the 1980s, 1983 and continuing to go. Yep. And because looking at the website, some amazing different things. What are some examples of different uh, different teachings that you do with it? Gosh, it's all sorts. Well, obviously, we teach conventional bushcraft in Britain, which is where you start. Um, which is just great fun. Last year, I spent most of the last year teaching here. Uh, it gave me a chance to work with my, I have an incredible team, to work with them and see how good they are. That was, that was wonderful. And um, on those courses, you learn a lot about yourself. You, you, it's safe here, chance to make mistakes and learn the basics. And then we have overseas expeditions with the, of the, the Arctic course for 35 years we've been doing. We do a canoeing course in the Ardèche, which is incredible. It's like Europe's yeah. Grand Canyon we go there because the water's warm. We're better to learn to canoe. And then many of the people who do that will later come on a trip to Canada. We'll, we'll go and do a long journey in remote, really, truly remote wilderness. Um, yeah, there's all sorts. There's so many things. You know, I lose track. You know, tracking in Namibia, we track leopards. And, oh, I mean, it's, it's just amazing. World. Um, unbelievable. Af yeah. Africa's beautiful. I mean, there, you, must, you obviously have travelled so far personally, but also doing uh, different programmes and things like that. Is there a place that's really captured your heart? Yeah, Britain. Coming home to Britain. This is home. Good answer. It's the most amazing country. And, and yet my heart is bleeding because I, you know, I drove down the road to come here today to see that people had dumped rubber tires on the, on the road verge and then an old mattress and rubbish. And I see people throwing junk from their cars. What has gone wrong? You know, we need to, to shake people and say, this is the most beautiful country. We have a responsibility to take proper care of it. There's so much beauty on the, I mean, there's an example, um, this isn't, but examples behind of uh, you that of, of, of great places in, in the United Kingdom. And I think often some people 
think that oh, I have to go completely abroad to try and find adventure. I mean, adventure can be in the park next to where mm. you've lived for 25 years. Adventure can be up in Scotland and Wales and Ireland, different places. But obviously the, f- the fortune you've had being able to travel is very nice to make TV programmes and go in different places and experience different cultures as well, because I, I imagine that has an effect on different cultures will have a different relationship with the outdoors. It's been amazing. I mean, I was very lucky in the, particularly in the, in the mid nineties, to travel to some of the most remote parts of the planet and work with indigenous cultures. Majority of those films cannot be made now because the, the elders that I worked with were the last generation who'd lived the old life and things have have changed dramatically. And as well as a lot of social problems in many places that have come along, the internet is a part of that problem um, as are drugs and and, uh, social, social decay, Mm. which is very, very sad because the, 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 the communities that are affected by that have so much to offer the world. Um, in their attitude towards nature, and yet they're also incredibly vulnerable to the, 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 the negative aspects of, of the modern world. It's heartbreaking. And, and these communities often have very tight-knit families, so when one person goes down, it has a real knock-on effect for everybody else. I was very lucky to go and visit the Maasai in, in Africa, and an incredible... Um, group and tribe uh, a group of people it's interesting how they've even related to the idea of tourism because that's and and there's again a blurred line between complete human nature but also the modern idea of tourism and money coming in and a collaboration with um uh, tourism boards and stuff like that so i find that really interesting the maasai are amazing they have a very very strong culture their, their cultural identity is massively strong um, and to survive, you have to adapt. And so it's correct for them to adapt to and to embrace the change and people coming in, as long as you don't lose yourself in the process. But I don't think there's much chance of that. I think 95% of the people listening to this will know, know a lot about what we're talking about and the idea of bushcraft, but just for the avoidance of doubt for those people listening that might be tuning in for the first time or whatever, just... Take me through what bushcraft actually is and the skills that you can develop. Well, firstly, I don't teach bushcraft. I teach wilderness bushcraft. And okay. I, I differentiate the two. This is not a game. It's a lot of fun. Um, but it's traditional outdoor knowledge that teaches you how to use the environment as, as much as equipment to, for your support and your welfare. So if you like, it's the long hand of survival training. So the sort of survival training that people might receive in the military is delivered extremely well, but in a very short period of time. We have longer, so we can go into into more detail. Um, it's the Shakespeare rather than, 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 than the Jingo, and that's the difference. It's a very important subject. It, it builds people both in terms of the skills they learn, but also their spirit. They learn a lot about themselves on the journey. The skills that are taught develop attitudes and strength, inner strength, which is sometimes or that you're left with. And hopefully it opens people's uh, hearts to bigger adventures, to seeing more of the world and to paying closer attention to nature. If you could pass along a skill to everyone and teach and impart something towards someone, what about wilderness bushcraft? What would be the number one go-to? This is rule number one about survival wilderness bushcraft. Oh, well, I mean, I think you you have to remember how important a sense of humour is. 
there's nothing more important to pack than a sense of humour because things will go wrong. And if you can laugh at them, then you'll still have a good time. What's And as I ask this question, I'm going to reset the cameras, um, but, uh, but just continue to talk. The... Um, going outdoors and adventuring when you were younger, doing it on your own, but you've also said, was it, did, did bits and pieces with family as well? How, no, on your own. So how would you view now going on an adventure with, or, you know, going outdoors with other people, or do you prefer to have a more remote experience? It's a, it's a really good question. So um, I love teaching. So I'm surrounded by people when I'm teaching because I, 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 I love seeing the growth and sharing what I've learned and passing it on. And that's one of the most rewarding things in life. And I also like to travel with my wife to do journeys together. That's amazing. I mean, to, you know, to, to, to travel with your, 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 your dearest love and to share the experience you, with you, that you have. What can be better than that? And, um, and then you, you can remember and, re- and recollect those things later on. But I do still also like to go on my own. Um, I love to do uh, solo trips. Particularly, I don't mind being on my own in rainforest or in, in the boreal forest. I love solo canoe journeys. The only place it's unwise to go on your own is the winter in the Arctic. Um, if, you have, if you make a mistake, life's over. You, really? you, you should always go in company in very cold conditions. But in, in a canoe trip's amazing. I do, though, meet... Other people sometimes on those trips, inevitably, when you get dropped off by an outfitter, word gets around that there's somebody on their own as another solo traveller. And quite often I find these people herring across a, a lake to say <laughs> hello. And when I go on my own, I'm very comfortable in my own company. I don't need to talk to people. And I quite often bump into people who will endlessly chat. It's like meeting Ben Gunn because they're missing something. And I think if you feel that way, you shouldn't be on your own. It would be better to travel in company. So uh, pointing out the obvious, no music, no headphones, you're embracing the noise of your surroundings. Yeah, absolutely. And you're never really alone. When you're on your own, wildlife comes closer to you. So if I'm travelling by canoe on my own, then what will happen is a loon will pop up, you know, within paddle reach of the canoe, which never happens when there are two of you. It's a, it's, a, it's a different thing. And I love that feeling. It's very good for the spirit. And you also have to make your own decisions. So when the weather's bad and it's difficult, you survive or die according to your decisions. There's nobody to share that decision-making with. And that's really important. When, when you go to get a coffee with a friend, you share the decision-making. Shall I get the drinks? Oh, yeah, you, I'll get the table. Now, what do you want? Yeah, I'll have that. And, and there's this dialogue that goes on, which is only tiny, but it's mutual support. When you're on your own, you have to make all the decisions. That's scary, but powerful. But it's scary, but it's very good because you, it reminds you, it helps you to make good decisions and to make good risk assessment, good judgment. But when you've succeeded, it gives you confidence in your ability to make good decisions. So I actually think that, you know, leaders of industry, CEOs should each have an opportunity to do a trip like that because when they have to make really big decisions on which the workforce future depends, they need to have had those experiences. How important is confidence and competence in tackling the outdoors? It's massively important. It's massively important. You have to, competence is really important. The training is really important. Trying to teach yourself things works. 
I mean, I, I mostly self-taught, but it, but you have to have the right frame frame of mind for that. The real secret to all training is repetition. Find the right way, get someone to show you the right way, and then repeat it, repeat it until it becomes second nature. Um, that's really important, and I don't see enough of that. I don't see people. You sit on the ski slope. People start on the nursery slopes, but they all they are fixated on is the black run. run. And they should spend longer on the nursery slopes until they become really super confident on that run before they then step up, step up to the next one. They will develop into a better skier in the long run. Um, so never be afraid of practicing the basics because the basics are the foundation on which you build the house of knowledge. But, but that develops your confidence. And how important is, important is failure and being acceptance of failure? I mean, obviously failure on a... Uh, and in a hostile environment that we've spoken about is a different level, but failure and you know going whatever it may be relative to your adventure is a learning area as well, isn't it? I think this is an, well. I think we're coming circle really to a generational thing. So when I was at school in the late sixties and early seventies, you could fail. Failure was a part of life, and we got used to picking ourselves up and dusting ourselves off and and and, and starting again. And I, I feel that later generations haven't been allowed to f- to fail. And being able to deal psychologically with failure is really important because you aren't always in control. Things do go wrong. It's not the end of the world. Is there an adventure, an experience, uh, a skill that you haven't, for whatever reason, uh, attempted, got to, that you would like to? No, no, not really. There are things I want to to know more about and to be better at. Uh, a whole range of those, um, which is great fun. And I never stop researching. I never stop learning. So I'm on that path. And you were saying about uh, traveling up here, people not respecting the world in which they should. That's become a lot more prevalent in the past decade, the idea of sustainability and looking after. I kind of touched on it at the beginning. How important a role does that play on what you do now and especially when you're teaching people? When I'm teaching people, I'm talking to people who are already converted. I'm talking to people who already appreciate right. nature and they want to know more. But but I think that as a society, we need to actually, you know, have some balls and stand up and say say to people, look, put that, put that rubbish back in your car and take it to an appropriate place. This isn't it. And just before I ask you your, for your piece of advice, um, just looking through um, – you, you, you're speaking on TV programs before, but I have to ask about um, potent, uh, surviving a helicopter crash and and helping a police manhunt. There are two two things that really intrigued me when I saw them, and I thought uh, if, I, if I was speaking to you, I'd love to ask you about it. What do you want to know? I mean, it's, it's I mean, a helicopter crash. It's was, amazing. Probably not in yeah, the moment. <laughs> it was a it was a pretty bad moment. Yeah, and. Um, I was working with one of the very best cameramen in television who was uh, very badly injured in the helicopter crash. He broke both his legs and his back. And as a result of uh, that crash, eventually had to leave television, which we have all, we've all been damaged by that because his work was just astonishing. And the programs he made, many, many people have watched and loved and never, of course, realised who, who the cameraman was. But I will tell you that one of the very best cameramen um, was lost to television in in, in that in that way, um, and it, it was also very interesting because you know I wasn't injured, and um, when it 
it was a very violent landing. The helicopter impacted and, and then somersaulted, impacting, I think, two or three times before sliding to a halt. And then a few seconds later, all of the fuel which had spewed out of the helicopter landed on us like a, a cloud of fumes. And at that moment, you move very, very quickly. Yeah. And, and I spark. Exactly. And I came out through a t- upside, I was upside down. I came out through a tiny hole uh, between the, the ground and the broken helicopter. And as I'm coming out, I realized that, that the cameraman beside me was, uh, was alive. I, mean, I was convinced everyone else would be dead. Actually, we all, we all survived. Um, and then I went back and, and, and helped to get him out. And you just, your training takes over at that point. So training is really important. First aid training, whatever you can, you just you go into automatic mode. I'm really glad you said about the the filmmakers and the cameramen and the people behind the, the the camera as well. Making these television programs are just as invested and just as skilled and knowledgeable, uh, and an important role of making these pieces of art. I would say they're very important. And the, the that that cameraman is called Alan Duxbury. He was an a, amazing cameraman, and there was another cameraman um, that I worked with at that time uh, called Barry Foster, who passed away last year, very sadly. And these two men were really, really special. The programs that we made in the mid-90s were incredibly demanding. Um, The premise that I had for the programs is that we would go to the most inhospitable parts of the world to meet indigenous people who live beyond everything. And we would go there at the worst time to be there. I mean, nobody films with the Inuit in February. You, You know, you go in May and it still looks cold. But when you're there in February, it really is cold. And so the, the crews, cameramen, directors and sound recordists all had to be of a very special calibre. This is an ordinary filmmaking. These people had to be ambassadors because when we filmed with these communities, one of the things I said to the producer of the series, Catherine Moore, who's brilliant, right off I said, when we go to these communities, we leave part of ourselves as well as, well as bringing back something of their lives. So we need crews that can do that. And we, we had them. And, you know, we didn't realise how unusual it was at that time to film in such remote locations um, and made nothing of it. We should have shown the, the, the Latin long and then you could have, you, know, Google, you wouldn't have Googled them, but you can now. You could see how remote those places were. A final question. You've talked about inspiration of the people you've worked with. Did you have an inspiration? Do you have an inspiration of someone that you looked up to and learned from? Oh, there are lots. I'm always learning now. But the best inspiration are the people I teach. You know, when you're teaching, your students teach you as a teacher. You learn an awful lot from them. So, you know, it's a partnership. 40 years of, of partnering uh, with the people who have attended the course has been amazing. I imagine. Ray, thank you so much for chatting to us. I've had a really, really, really interesting conversation. The final thing that I'd, um, I'd like to ask from you is a piece of advice. Uh, I mean, you've given loads of it, but a piece of advice to someone who will be coming onto the podcast in the near future. Who's, who's coming on next? Do you want to know? Yeah, go on. Oh, we have... Um, a lovely, a lovely man called Darren Edwards, who is speaking here today, who, uh, whilst he was climbing, he tragically fell and had uh, suffered a almost life ending injury that left him, um, unable to move from, I think his neck downwards and has basically said, no, I'm not letting that define me. I'm going to get into kayaking. I, uh, I'm pretty sure he tried out for the GB kayak team like seven months after this injury does a lot of um, speaking trying to inspire people and not letting it define him and uh, an extremely inspiring individual so amazing I mean, what advice can you give to somebody like that but if he's into kayaking I think the only advice I would give is that um, 
when you choose your buoyancy aid, get one that's really buoyant because they have different degrees of buoyancy and it's great to have a little bit of extra buoyancy built in. And I find that useful and I'm sure he would. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to passing that along. Ray, thank you so much. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode with the amazing Ray Mears. I really, really enjoyed having this conversation. I didn't plan to talk about social media and his viewpoints on that, but I'm so glad that we did. It's a really, really interesting conversation and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to this week's sponsors, Visit Isle of Wight. Make sure to check them out and support them because they are supporting us. Make sure to forward this on as well to someone who you think would enjoy it just as much as you. Get a bit more of an insight into Ray Mears. You can also listen to the full back catalogue of these episodes at outsideandactive.com. We'll be back next week for another episode of the Outside and Active podcast. I've been Dominic Brown and until next time, enjoy the outdoors.